this episode kaya stramanis who wears multiple hats as an artist translator and editor discusses her father's profound influence on her significance of latvian language and translation in her life her experience with the dalki archive press and open letter books she also spoke about her unique visual art project stuff thrown on my head and her work on the books high tide and river kaya stramanis translates from the latvian and is the editorial director at open letter books a graduate with an ma in literary translation studies from the university of rochester she has translated works by inga abil zigmund scoins yanis yonevs and gundagar eps among others she is the recipient of several awards including the 2015 at steel book award for best translation in english for her translation of high tide by inga abil and the 2019 Lillian Fairchild Memorial Award for a translation of Doom 94 by Yanis Yonevs. Uh, welcome to our podcast, Kaya. Thank you. Uh, your father was an academician. Yes, he was. Um, he was a professor of journalism. What kind of an impact uh, he had on your literary pursuit? No, by the way, by the way, the photograph I have seen on Insta video of your father, it's a wonderful portrait. Yeah, his partner took that photo and it it truly is, it's just, you know, it's, it's his, it's, it's his classic expression of, you know, sort of, sort of a, I'm letting you get away with this and letting you get away with taking this photo or it's the same expression when you know I walk into the room and I see that photo and it's him sort of going mhm <laughs> and what did we learn today so it's it's very comforting to have that photo at home and it is it's just a very beautiful photo she did a really good job capturing that moment he was a professor of journalism and mass media is also a historian. My grandfather was actually a playwright and a translator also, and that's not something I really was too aware of until I was maybe in my early teens. But anyway, my mother is a biologist but has always been a reader. I grew up around books, grew up around literature, and yeah, at some point I wanted to be a writer. So in college I got my bachelor's degree in German. and in creative writing and in literature and then I went to Latvia for a few years and at some point at some point I figured out I was always sort of playing around with translation since high school and college but at some point I figured out that translation is kind of a loophole <laughs> a loophole for writing so I have I have very little patience and very little attention span for my own writing I was only good for maybe 10 page short story something like that um and then at some point translation started feeling really nice because i could read something that was already written something that i at that time in the beginning fell in love with and wanted to share with other people from latvian or from english but that that part is harder and i haven't really <laughs> haven't gone that route yet and yeah so i sort of figured out that translation i guess you could say is kind of a loophole and I really do enjoy the the puzzle, the puzzle aspect of it. I enjoy putting the pieces together and you still get to write, but 
you're not someone's already done the 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 heavy lifting in terms of plot and character and setting and i'm i'm making it sound like i've i found another easy way out of something or <laughs> i'm pinning myself as a very lazy person possibly but it was just fun and i when i was in latvia right after college i worked at a translation company for 3 years doing technical translation still reading a lot at home all the time and at some point i started googling literary translation masters degrees because i missed literature i was very tired of working on contracts and marketing texts and things that things that were less exciting for me to read and yeah so i i googled literary translation masters program hoping that i'd find something and i found several and i wound up in back in the united states <laughs> Not, 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 not. Wasn't expecting to go that route, and here I, here I still am, thirteen years later. But it worked out. I think, <laughs> I think it worked out all right, and the program was great. I got to see the behind the scenes of translation. I really, really fell in love with several authors and their works, and yeah, here I am, thirteen years later, still puttering away. I'll call it puttering and we can talk about that later if it is a question, but call it puttering because I am also editor at Open Letter Books, which publishes and also Latvian literature is not it's still it still hasn't found its splash mm -hmm. in the English language readership. So I say puttering because I'm not always busy with translation. I'd love to be, but we need to we need to make that Latvian literature needs to make that splash with some publisher or several publishers and with readership. And I am very convinced that it's still coming. Yeah. Were you speaking Latvian at home? Yes. Yes. Both my parents are from Latvian families. So I grew up speaking it at home, exclusively speaking Latvian at home. I used to tell a brief story that I remember as a child at some point having a timeout and having to go stand in the corner, face the wall, because I was refusing to speak Latvian or because I was speaking too much English at home. And so it was only one time, only one time, but my parents were very like, nope, <laughs> <laughs> this is go, go stand in the corner and think about it. And it was, it was nice. I never, I, I was very lucky in that I grew up in a community. I grew up in Minnesota and grew up in a community where I was never made fun of and I never felt insecure about being bilingual. So I'd be at school and people would ask questions about the language. You know, if I was calling home to ask my parents for something or to pick me up after an extracurricular activity, often had friends leaning in and listening and, and trying to parse out parts of the language. And so I am very grateful to my parents and the community that I don't. I have, I have a lot of friends who growing up had one parent from somewhere else. And like I have one friend whose mother is Korean and father is American. And at some point when she was four or five years old, this friend came home from kindergarten or preschool, whatever, and just said, I don't want to speak Korean anymore. No more. I don't want it. And her mother being stereotypical stubborn Korean woman said, fine, and just stopped. And so 
she grew up not, you know, her, her Korean sort of plateaued at the four-year-old and she wishes her mom had been stubborn in the opposite direction and just said, you be quiet, you're speaking Korean. Because now when she meets her mother's family, she, you know, she can understand, I think, everything that they're saying or most of what they're saying, but her response, she just doesn't have the language. And I'm glad that, I mean, it is a two-way street. I'm glad that I also, I guess, I guess I never thought of it as an option that I could just say no. And that's something that I see with my, with my own son is that there are times where he'll, you know, we'll be at a store and uh, he'll go afterwards. He'll say, mom, why are you speaking English to, to that person at the store? But you don't speak English to me. And I'm like, well, because we speak Latvian into each other. And he's like, sometimes he'll just be so angry. He's like, oh, I don't, I hate when you do that. I don't want you to do that. And at some point I figured out as a parent that I could, I guess I decided if he's not going to speak it fluently at a certain, he can't, he can't stop me from speaking it. And now he's at a point where he's not going to, he's never going to not understand the language because I'm speaking to him exclusively in Latvian. It's very weird to me. There's some kids' books I'll read to him in English because of the rhyming or something that it's... But otherwise, I'll translate as I read to him because I want it to be in Latvian. But yeah, he's five now, and he... I don't think he'll be able to unlearn it. He can't... That's That was my, my evil plan at a certain point. I was like, that's fine. You cannot speak it, but you're going to hear me speak it, and you're going to understand it. And he is you know, constantly saying more, speaking more and surprising me and, you know, saying things to around my parents, which surprised them there, you know, he'd say something to them and I'd get a text message saying, Oh, you know, we just asked, we just asked, or I just asked Alex if something, something, and he responded to me in a full sentence in Latvian, like, where'd that come from? And I'm going, I don't know. He, he doesn't do it for me. (laughs) (laughs) He always, he always, yeah, it's kind of so now it's now it's different sorts of translation. Um and you know, I do the translation for adult books and texts and then I'm I am always translating. I'm I'm speaking with him or when we read a book in Eng- that's in English, like I said, I primarily will translate it for him just as I'm looking at the page. I'm not I'm not UN or Hague material by doing that sort of simultaneous translation unless they need someone to step in for a Pete the Cat rendering in Latvian then I can definitely <laughs> definitely help out with that. Yeah, and that's kind of the all over trajectory of of my life with translation and I'll go back after after grad school mm-hmm. the program in Rochester the Masters in Literary Translation Studies thesis for that program was a book-length translation. And that's where High Tide comes into play by Inga Abela. And that was that was the first book I translated. And the nice thing about the program at the University of Rochester in conjunction with Open Letter is that we average about one book a year by a former student or someone... Yeah, most of the students who have most of the students are have been they've already graduated when when we the book by the time the book is published. And then it's really nice because as a student you get a year and a half, two years to essentially pitch your project but work on it 
And it's nice because at the end of it, you get a contract and some money (laughs) for your thesis, which is not common in the United States. And that, that sort of kicked it off. Yeah. And high tide. And then I applied for the editorial job. So I'm as the former editor moved to Germany and now I'm, now I'm just here. <laughs> okay. Now, when you think, you think in Latvian or in English? It depends on the situation. I, when I get very upset or frustrated or angry, <laughs> I do default to Latvian. I, it might be sprinkled. It's usually sprinkled with English swear words because Latvian is a very, it's a very mild language in that sense. We don't, we don't really have, unless we take from Russian, we don't have swear words. And we were, sometimes we even compare, you know, what's the, what's the sort of, you know, you know, piss off sort of saying in Latvian and some of the, some of the more common ones, it's like, a pupas, which is like go into the beans, or like a bekot, which is go mushrooming. Like it's not very aggressive, and it's not. And most most Latvians would be very happy to be told to go mushrooming. It's a favorite. It's a favorite pastime. Very important when speaking in terms of spirituality. That's always in Latvian. Anytime, call it praying, call it talking to higher power. That always happens in Latvian for me, and. Yeah, then it then it depends. I I count I count in my head in English. When my son's around, I do most things in Latvian just automatically. And I dream. I dream in more languages than I speak fluently, I think. Which is which is often often confusing waking up and going, you know, going, I only did three semesters of Japanese and I, you know, have my my two sentences that I I wake up going did I, is that? <laughs> so it switches back and forth, but that is, that is a definite. And now, now I'm actually, so my stepkids do not speak Latvian. They, the, the oldest one understands some things. She's very good with languages in general, but then my stepson started learning German in high school. And so that I lost one language. I also speak German, one language that I could kind of, grumble and 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 (laughs) bemoan things about and now that our youngest is learning or speaks latvian that's another language so now i'm like if i'm if i'm very frustrated and everyone's in the car (laughs) it's, it's even more frustration because it's like ah if you know if if my husband does something and I have a, a two second, just like, wah, wah, I can't, if I do it in Latvian, then our son can, you know, as soon as, so daddy, mommy said, like, you can't, no, <laughs> can't do that. And, and in German, I don't, I don't know how advanced my stepson is, but I have to be careful with that as well. In English, of course, everyone understands it. Um, so this is, I need to learn, I need to learn a third language better <laughs> or no, another language so I can complain about my, my loved ones yeah. in their presence, which is everyone's dream. Yeah. <laughs> now, you had a stint with the Dalky Arcase. Yes. I mean, a stint is a stint is a good word for it. There, there isn't so much to tell. After the founder, John O'Brien, passed away and Deep Bellum assumed the press 
So Open Letters, Open Letters publisher Chad Post was the assistant director, I think is the, was the right position name for what he was at Delkey, but he basically helped run the press or ran the press for several years. And then Open Letter kind of grew out of Delkey. And so before John passed away, there was, you know, there were conversations and one of the, one of the things was, okay, you know, Deep Bellum can take on the sort of Deep Bellum and Will Evans will take care of the logistical part and help maintain the press and whatever else needs to be done sort of organizationally. And Chad, knowing John and having worked with John, very in tune with John's vision and and the types of books that he wanted. And just to keep that, the editorial spirit going. And so Chad was brought in or, ke- or kept on, brought in to take care of that. And in the process, Chad asked me if I would be interested in helping with whatever I could help with. And so I was doing proofreading and at a certain point took on some production management, which in itself is not a difficult job. But when you are trying to, when you're trying to bring back Delkey Archive in all its grandiosity and also do editorial things for open letter, it's near impossible. You're doing, you know, almost, almost triple the hours. So, you know, 80 to 120 hour work weeks, it feels like. And there just literally are not enough hours in the day. We're working with people all over the world. You know, we had a typesetter or there is still a typesetter who is in India. There's um, another typesetter in Spain who's also proofreading things. People in New York, in Texas, in across. And it's, it's so much. And it was a very valuable time that I spent volunteering and, and helping. That's the thing. It was, it was volunteering, but it was, it was important to me that Chad, that I had been asked to help because I knew it was something very important to Chad and being able to, you know, support the people who you work with and who you care about is, it's very fulfilling for me. And, and then at a certain point, it's just, it's just, it's just a lot. And, for me personally, I just needed to, I wanted, I wanted to and needed to dial things back and return to focusing on open letter. And in the process, I mean, in the process, it feels like everyone is sort of sharing the struggles of trying to get things done on time and get books out on time. But I learned so much more about working with printers. I learned how to typeset or typesetting basics, which is very valuable. And that was incredibly fun. And it was incredibly fun to be involved in the the re-release or the, the, the new Delkey Archive Essentials edition. So being part of re-releasing these, these classic Delkey books. And I got to help with editing with a couple of the newer ones. And that was super fun as well. I always love working with new translators who I haven't worked with before and just the editorial process for that alone is very exciting. Um, and yeah, and that, that was the stint. And uh, at a certain point, it just, it's, it's so fun and it's so important, but it becomes, it becomes a lot, especially when open letter is, we're only two people, but maybe, maybe someday in the future, 
helping out some more with that. But that was really, that was really it. There's not, not nothing really juicy. I was just trying to help compile all the files and communicate with the typesetter, with the translator or the author or whoever was writing an interview and then trying to get those books out to print. And there's so many of them. <laughs> there's so, there's so many books and, you know, there's, they want to get the essentials out because the backlist carries the sales. And there's so many contracts that, you know, books that John had had signed on before he passed. And, you know, they're, they're trying to honor every one of those and get in touch still with people who, who haven't responded if, if they haven't. But it's, it's a hugely important press and it's a hugely important project. And, Everything that's going into it from is from Chad's side is invaluable, and everything that's going into it from the Deep Vellum sort of their sort of consortium of presses is invaluable, and I think it's very close to stabilizing again. Of course, you have COVID, and there you know there are times with trying to take over at the beginning, taking over the press, and people wanting to know when books will come out and when things will happen, and you you also kind of learn. At that point, we learned about the depth of the the supply and demand issues that occurred because of the pandemic. I mean, you had printers who would order paper from a paper mill and they would get only they wouldn't they never knew if they would get what they ordered or not because the paper mill was also struggling. So it's I think <laughs> I think the whole experience just made me realize how tired, <laughs> how tired I am yeah. and how tired the world is. But it's it's still fun. There's something about publishing and there's something about translating where it's so addictive. It's just it's it's addictive. I I I struggle sometimes if I think, I don't know if I should be doing this for this long or if I should be doing something else. And then I sometimes I think, well, I don't know what else I would be able to do with my skills. And other times it's well, I don't know that I want to do anything else. <laughs> Now, Open Letters, uh, were you there from day one? No, no. Um, Open Letter was founded in 2007. First book came out in 2008. And I joined the press in 2012 after I graduated or after, yeah, after I got my master's degree and then after the summer. So 2012 to now. Now, tell us about uh, Open Letter. So Open Letter is a nonprofit press, literary translation press based at the University of Rochester. We publish about 10 books a year, mostly fiction, a lot of short story collections, and we average about one poetry book a year. Recently, we've been doing more nonfiction. So previously, our really only nonfiction author was Dubrovka Ugreshik. We did have a poetry collection that was part essay, which counts as nonfiction. And now we have a very nice Polish reportage series, literally a literal school of reportage. And these books are incredibly moving and important. There's, yeah, we, we've generally been a three-person operation. Right now we're a two-person operation and we publish books from all around the world. We, our publisher, Chad, has always had a huge soft spot for Spanish literature. It's the language he learned in high school and in college and sort of, I think, where 
where he initially started getting into literature and translation was Spanish. So we we are never short on Spanish language books, a lot of Polish, French, some Russian, Korean, just great, great, great books. So, so far, how many languages have we handled through Open Literature? At least 20, I believe. Oh. At least 20. I could, yeah, I could go down the list and count, but I think, I think at least 20 languages. And more, more countries than that because there are you know, the Spanish speaking countries and the French speaking countries. And trying to, right now I'm thinking about the, the gender. Um, I think it, I think nearly, we're nearly 50 50 with um, male identifying, female identifying authors mm-hmm. as well, which is something that we, we truly do want to focus on of, of you know, bridging that gap. Tell us about editing. And uh, people who have been published through your press, how many of them are first-time translators? I think somewhere, there's probably at least one a year where, or on average, one a year, someone who, you know, it's their first book in translation, or maybe one one every other year. But we do we do also have a pretty healthy, I think, balance of sort of more more established or more published translators and translators who have had fewer books or maybe their first book. Uh, and that's also where um, working with the students in the literary translation master's program, and we if we average about one book a year from a student or a former student, then that also sort of helps um, get those in. But other than that, see, the thing is that we... It's harder to find a book that we really want to publish from a translator who has not translated before. A lot of times, I think just because of I don't want to I don't want to talk about the experience or inexperience of translators because I think you can you can be a phenomenal translator and not have had any books come out yet, or you know you haven't started on your first full length book. But the the main obstacle is that as a small press, we do only do ten books a year, and those there are, there are other obligations within those constraints. So if we're trying to do one book of poetry a year, that leaves us nine books. Nonfiction, you said. Yeah. Then we have a Bulgarian prize that we work with, and. There have been a couple years that we've skipped that because we haven't been presented a book that we thought was right for the press. But in the years that there's a Bulgarian book, then there are only eight books left. And so we're, you know, we're trying to fill these and taking, it's kind of like the double-edged sword of a small press is that because we are small, we are able to make those decisions to take those risks on lesser known translators or lesser known authors. But on the other hand, we are also in a tighter place because we have so few books in comparison to larger larger independent presses or just larger presses in general where we need to be we're so constrained by by what we're able to but by, by the number of the books 
And so it's, you know, often you're, you know, some often it might come down to, you know, if you're trying to choose between two books and you love both of the books, you just have to think, well, either toward marketing or, or, or how, how popular it might be or might not, or you might just say, you know, this book, this, you know, book A took place in France, book B took place in South Africa. We have so many French books. Let's do the one that like, it's, you never know, (laughs) you never know what we're going to want to do. But I, like I said, I do, I do like working with new translators. And I think working with presses like Open Letter, someone who is translating their first book, we we really value communication with our translators and we value sort of discussion, conversation back and forth about the book. And so you're not just being edited, you're being very closely read, you're being talked to about your choices, you're being asked questions about, you know, about the the content or the context or the word order. And, and I, I do truly think that between myself and Chad and, and other editors at small presses, you get such a, such a close editing experience. And that makes us better editors and better readers, but it also makes the translators better translators and better readers. No. <laughs> getting work published at open letters how difficult is it i don't i don't think it's difficult but you know since since we are a two person team it's really you know we read a sample and if the sample grabs us and if if we're really really riveted by this book or the possibility of the book you know, in one sense, it's very easy because there are only two of us. So you only have to please two people. <laughs> you only have to make two people happy. But again, we're only two people and we have a lot of similar tastes. We have a lot of dissimilar tastes. Yeah, it's it's not it's not hard, I think, to... Oh, that's... <laughs> how to answer it's a tricky question it's hard and it's not hard because like i was saying we are we are constrained by the numbers and and but sometimes you know we'll we'll have worked with translators for several years and if if they're you know we will have liked you know this book or by this author you know we've, we've liked this author's first book the second book the third book and then the fourth book we just might not be interested in and then that can come as a surprise to everyone so it's it's really not that hard but it's also it's kind of a it's kind of a lottery <laughs> you know we're not we're not difficult people we're not you know we we like things that are very highbrow we like things that are are funny. We like things that are, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy, but it's also not easy. <laughs> now, as an editor, right, you are into editing. Have you had any difficult experiences with translators as an editor? Yes. <laughs> can you, can you, is, if, is it possible <laughs> to elaborate on that? <laughs> any specific experiences without naming? any specific experiences without naming and without offending mm, i can sort of i i can sort of speak generally and also apply this to myself but translators are notorious 
tinkerers. We tinker, tinker, tinker. If we have infinite, if we have an infinite calendar of time to tinker and work on a text, we will, you know, change, you know, synonyms. We'll go through synonyms and just cycle through them until we're, you know, blue in the face and someone has to just pull the plug and tell us to stop. We have, I'll, I'll use one example because he's a good friend, but one translator who there was, there was one book that he translated where, you know, it's like a 600 to 800 page book. It's massive. Mm -hmm. And at some point he sent an email saying, well, I've, I've made some hopefully final changes and this is, the book is already laid out. It's already typeset some final changes and we're going, okay, it's a very long book. We'll look through, he probably found something and the majority of what he had done was taken like the word terrible and changed it to horrible, like throughout the book. And we we're just like, like, we're like, we, we love you, but you need to stop. Like this is, it's like, it's like you need to have an intervention at some point for translators because it's like, no one's going to read this book and think, he should have used horrible instead of terrible. It would have made it, it would have given it five stars out of five instead of three stars out of five. But that's, that's just the thing we get into our heads. And I've done the same thing where I'll stare at a sentence and, you know, like if, if the sentence is, you know, typically, typically we take, or we typically take like staring at a sentence for, for 30 minutes, an hour going, should it be we typically take or typically we take? What sounds better? Like, does it, you know, and that's something where you could mark it and just go on and come back to it later. But, you know, I might decide just, okay, it's typically we take. And then two weeks later, I might wake up in the middle of the night screaming to myself going, it should have been we typically. And then you just feel, you feel horrible but it doesn't it doesn't make or break the translation at that point. You can make arguments that it it does, but that's just kind of because we are playing with language because we are taking that that Rubik's cube which is just it's all one solid color. <laughs> There's it's some it's like it's something like that. It's it's like the closest you get to math without it being math is how I feel sometimes or a puzzle and there are there are elements of it that like i think with any other art form you you know an artist might think oh the painting would have been so much better if the cloud had been you know 3 millimeters to the left it's you know who who really how many people are going to go through the gallery or in the museum and go that cloud placement though if it had a few more millimeters difference it would have been a masterpiece and now it's just a pretty painting so yeah that's that's one thing with translators and with working with them and working with us is that i i often i empathize i empathize so fully because i've been there and i am there and i do do those same things and that's one thing that i think helps with being an editor as well is that at a certain point if someone is going back and forth between terrible and horrible and terrible and horrible as the editor, you need to step in. And as an editor who also translates, step in and say, it's okay. 
You're going to give yourself an ulcer if you keep doing this. I promise you it's, it's lovely the way it is. It's brilliant. Can't say perfect because I think most translators will develop a tick, you know, or twitch in their eye if you, because, because we always strive for that perfection, but it's beautiful as it is. Don't worry about it. And, but most, most translators that, I think all the translators that we've worked with and that I've worked with, like I said, because we do value that communication, you do, you do develop a sense of trust and a sense of humanity, especially. And I do edit the way that I'd like to be edited. Uh, I mentioned asking questions. I ask a lot of questions and I will put in track changes in the comments in the margin. You know, if I, if I think I, I've misunderstood a sentence or if a sentence doesn't make sense to me, I'll offer, you know, solutions. Now, did you mean A, B, or C, or maybe is it this, or am I just putting the emphasis on the wrong word as I'm reading and that's throwing me off because I'd like to know. And once I know, I feel, I feel better about it. And the translators are all by and large, very good at explaining why they made certain choices. Or for example, if I make an edit and the translator wants to stud it, wants it to stay as is, I do ask that they explain why, because I think it's, again, I think it's important. I think that communication is important. And I think that it makes you a better translator to be able to explain your choices. There was one, uh, there's one translator who we work with where she and her daughter translated the last, last few Mercedes Rotorata books from Catalan, Martha Tennant and Marusha Rolano. And they, they sent me a, a very short list with the first book that they translated together saying something like, these are the words or the, the terms or synonyms that we've agreed on. And that these are sort of like, these are our, our non-negotiable are non-negotiable words. And one of them was the color gray. And they preferred the spelling to be G-R-E-Y. And I generally prefer G-R-A-Y, not just because... And we, we got into this nerdy, super nerdy conversation about it, about why we preferred each. And I said, well, you know, beyond the fact... And they said, well, they said, well, you know, the E-Y is more British English, and that's just kind of the one that we prefer. And I said, okay, I can, I can hear that. Also, you know, to me, gray with an A is more of a blue undertone and gray with an E. And they're like, yes, yes, yellow undertone. And I'm going, exactly. And the book, the book's undertone is yellow. So let's gray with an E is perfect. I love it. And that's the kind of, you know, of course, as a reader, you might not, you might not pick up on that, but as an editor, you're like, like, and as translator. So it's, it's fun to understand why people have certain things that they that they like or don't like. I've had, I, I think, I can't think of the example, but let's just take acts where, you know, the difference being A-X-E or A-X and someone, you know, someone saying, a translator saying, I, I would like it to be A-X-E throughout regardless of the North American British English because it looks stupid and sad without the E. And like, okay, fine, then we can do that. I can understand those sorts of you know, idiosyncrasies as, as a language user that you look at it enough times and you're, it just looks so sad without the E. So we have to put it in there. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay. Other than um, being a translator and editor and all that, you're a visual artist too. And one interesting project that I have come across is stuff being thrown on my head. 
So funny, funny thing. Beautiful photographs. So tell us about it. Thank you. We were actually looking at these last night. My son had my son had seen it before or some of them because it's in the corner of my YouTube profile. So when he uses my phone, he's like, oh, I know it's down at the bottom and on the side. Yeah, I when I was living in Latvia, I started acquiring camera equipment and my best friend and I would always take our cameras with when we went on trips and just started getting more and more into photography, photography being something that I also um, picked up from my father and and learned about from him. And at a certain point, I ended up on Flickr. I don't quite remember why. I think I was just looking for a place that was not Facebook to post my photos because not all my family had Facebook. And I started getting more interested in the communities that Flickr has. And one of the communities I, or the the projects I ended up with, there's a project referred to as the 365 or the 365 project where you take a picture a day. And the one that I started taking part in that I, that I started myself was the uh, self-portrait. 365, because I, like my father, prefer to be behind the camera as opposed to in front of the camera. And for whatever reason, I just, I thought that I should change that or do something a little different. And so I started with photos that did not show my face at all and progressed, progressed to going outside of my apartment and taking pictures. You know, I was in the stairwell and then outside and then on trips and, and, and then, became much braver, especially if there was a park nearby where there weren't, I could go somewhere and wait until there weren't a lot of people. And then this picture with the, with the stuff hitting my head, by that point, that was my, I think that was the second 300. I had finished the first year, I believe. And I believe this was in the second year. And I believe it was my 25th birthday. And I just, I had made a bunch of friends on Flickr on the platform and we'd joke around and you know, leave funny comments on each other's photos and just just have a good time. And when I came back to the United States for graduate school, I, I didn't know anyone in Rochester, New York. My closest friends had stayed in Latvia. They were international teachers and you know, I didn't know anybody. And so my Flickr community came with me and we started, I started doing doing slightly funnier more humoristic things in the photos and i don't know how or why i got this idea of having a ball hit my head but it's all it's all done in post in production in photoshop but i had this idea and and i practiced i found this this kickball that was just always in the basement at my dad's house it had been there for years it's kind of like the the like piece of paper in the middle of the living room that no one bothers to pick up. It was just in the corner for like 10 years. And I, I got this idea. So I, I practiced in the mirror to sort of see and look how, how it would look to have a ball hit your face and the glasses askew. And, you know, I, 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 I pieced the picture together and you have to, you know, you're doing all sorts of, all sorts of things. Like you have the ball and then you need to, you know, move your hand so that you can Photoshop the full silhouette. And I just, 
I think I just had the idea because I thought, oh, you know, my my friends, my Flickr friends are going to get such a kick out of this and it's going to be so funny. And I truly did it for just like a group of, you know, like less than I think fewer than 10 people. I just I was like, I'm just going to do this funny thing and my friends will my friends will get a laugh out of it. And they did. I mean, they did. Obviously, it's <laughs> it's entertaining. And then it wasn't until three years after that, that that photo went truly viral. And that's where that's where all my you know 15 minutes of fame came from. But yeah, it just it, it, it went from being something that I wanted to do to get a laugh out of a very small group of people and for myself, just to be goofy. And then I started using other objects because clearly, the, the concept was popular. It was funny. And I thought, you know, that's one way. It's kind of like people and my best friend and I would always, we, we initially always had like the same, the same sort of awkward smile in photos where you kind of force it and just like, just cause you, cause you don't feel comfortable in front of the camera and doing something like that, something humorous, low level humor was so much more fun than serious self-portraits or trying to look, you know, pretty or I don't know. It's just, it's like, it's like Monty Python comedy, but, but captured in, in, in one moment in slow motion. And it's, it's been after, and after I did that one with the ball, I was like, well, I've, you know, I've maxed out. (laughs) I've I've hit my peak. I've I've thought about going back and doing more. At a certain point, I started doing seasonal ones. There's one with the pumpkin. There's one with strawberries. Where I had one one friend point out, oh, but the leaves are fall colors. So you know, we know that this is this is staged. So yes, it is staged. They're fall strawberries. And but I, I haven't I haven't I guess gotten the courage or the energy to go back and and do any more. And I don't know that I want to do any more. I, I might want to do other other things. But it was it was fun. I actually the one with the ball hitting my head, and I don't remember which other two. But do you know the author John Green, yeah, who wrote The Fault in Our Stars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah he's he's purchased three like huge like maybe like this size <laughs> pictures of that. I don't know where he has them uh, or if he has them anywhere. I would I used to joke and say, oh, it's probably in his like dog's bathroom or something. Like you know, famous author, probably just like oh, you know somewhere where no one sees it or maybe they're just rolled up but yeah that was that was my other after my 15 minutes of fame and my my stepdaughter loves john green or loved john green when she was younger and so that was also she'd go to school (laughs) my daughter too. yeah 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 and so it was so it was so great for her because she'd go to my stepmom john green buys my stepmom's photos like oh yes (laughs) i'm the cool parent (laughs) Now, tell us about uh, contemporary literature in Latvia. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting world. Uh, when I first when I first started reading more prose, so many of the books seemed so steeped in, or not steeped in, but dependent on the post-Soviet identity. And I think that's a common, it's a common occurrence in Eastern European countries um, or Balkan countries. They're, they're steeped in the, the, you know, the awful part of, of history. Um, but, and they're, they're, they're authors who, 
at a certain at a certain point, I started reading more books where the authors were not were using it less as a plot point plot point or a crutch, and more as just a a point of reference. Um, and I think to use again uh, Inga Abela, um, her book High Tide, it takes place. Um, I mean, throughout several decades, but the the more contemporary end of it takes place in the nineties, and. You know, it makes reference to walking through Riga or or some part of the city, so you know, you know when it's taking place, and you know kind of, but it's not. You know, it's about the people and the relationships, and not about the the occupation or the post occupation. And another interesting thing that's come out in the last ten years is that there's a publisher, Dianas Gramata, that started doing um, historical series, and I don't remember. I think. It started out, there was an anthology where there was a sh- one short story, approximately one short story um, per decade in the 21st century. Um, and then that's where that project grew from. And then they started commissioning full novels um, based on or around certain events in Latvian history. So... Um, you know, there's one that takes place in 1905 during, you know, 1905 was full of revolutions all over the place. Um, and, you know, there's one that takes place in the barric- during the time of the barricades in Riga. And um, that, that was an interesting project because I think using, using those historical backdrops gave it a, a, a fresh and also more intentional aspect, more more intentional. Like we're, you know, we're not just writing about this because it's the only thing we know how to write about because that's what we grew up in um, or what, what we experienced or our parents experienced for those, for those authors, but because it is, it was, it was branded as a historical series. And so um, that, that also introduced me to authors who I had not heard of before um, I have not read all of them in this, all of them in the series, um, but they did a really, I think, remarkable job um, putting that together. And I think they're, con- oh no, the next one that they're doing is um, kind of like, uh, oh, not not biographies, but sort of fictionalized semi biographies of a lot of Latvian writers, um, and those apparently, I haven't I haven't read any of those, but um, people are eating those up. Latvian readership is eating those up. I, uh, there's one author who's a friend where she was saying the first, whatever the first print run was, it was already sold out or spoken for and they hadn't even done the book launch yet. So it's, you know, people seem to be very interested in the lives of these artists um, who are alive during the ooh, 50s, 60s, 70s. And right now, one of the strengths that I think Latvian authors have especially right now is I think that short story format is again something that is it's just it works really well um and I don't I don't know why that is that's not something that I've and I would would like to sit down someday and talk to a lot of these authors and ask um I mean not that's it would be rude to say why is why is this uh book of yours uh amazing and the other ones are not um but it's there's so many good short story collections and 
also just shorter novels. Um, and so Open Letter, to to do an aside, Open Letter um, started a translator triptych uh, series a couple years ago. First three books were from Spain, curated by Katie Whittemore, um, who also translated all three of the books. The next one is uh, from South Korea, uh, curated by Janet Hong. And then I am curating the third one, which is books from Latvia. And the book I the book I translated is short novel, and the other two books are short story collections. And the number of short story collections right now that and there's or and my my sort of thesis statement for my triptych is that shorter form fiction for whatever reason right now is so good in Latvia. It's so good. I, you know, all three of these books I've read that are in the triptych and, you know, they're, they're each in their own way, nothing like anything I've read before, um, from, from, you know, other authors or, or Latvian authors as well. And I don't, I don't know why <laughs> I haven't, this is, yeah, this is something you know, I can, I can read reviews. I can read critiques. Um, but right now, contemporary, contemporary Latvian fiction, there are a lot of, a lot of people who are coming over, I think from other, um, other mediums, um, or yeah, other, other mediums, other media. Um, there's one author who I think was, I think he was primarily a playwright or a director first. And wrote a book a couple years ago that um, it's called. Uh, I think the English we're going with "Call Me, Call Me Calendar," um, and it's about this uh, sort of eccentric, eccentric uh, youngish man who um, you know has learned every single day of the Latvian name day calendar um, and knows every single name for every single day, and so it's. Um, kind of like 365 chapters and um, it's just this very, very accessible, readable book about sort of small, smallish town life in Latvia and this guy being kind of eccentric and, um, and and it's the, I think it's the author's first book and people just loved it. And, um, I mean, it is. It's a good book. So I don't. I don't know. I don't know if it's just more people now are. Um, I think more people are writing or are getting into it, or maybe the Latvian author kind of consortium is being more open to new voices. Um, I think. I think, as in many countries around the world, there there is that sort of you know old guard established group of authors, or maybe there are two camps of, of established authors. And it's really hard, um, very, it's very clicky. It's very hard to, to break in, um, especially if you don't have a connection, um, or if you weren't someone's mentee, if you're just, you know, Joe Schmo who wrote this amazing book, but you don't have any connection to the writing world. I don't know how, I don't know how you would get noticed. Um, but I think the number of new voices that are either cropping up or that are being advertised, um, those are things that are changing as well because 
um, there are authors who I, you know, I look and I go, oh, I haven't I go to a bookstore and I say, oh, I haven't, this is, must be a new author. I've never, never seen anything by them. And then you look, you know, at their bibliography and you're like, oh, <laughs> they've been around forever. They've just not been marketed in a way that, you know, made them apparent. Uh, so that might have something to do with just the the bigger presses in Latvia getting better at marketing. Um but there are also a lot of um, literary journals online or websites. Um, Satori is one, which is great. They have they have short pieces or poetry up there. Um, Duomuzim is another one. Yeah, it's it is it is very active. They have prose readings every year, um, which which are very interesting to go to. Um, and they've also the also the prose readings they've been starting or no they haven't they've been doing this where they have authors coming from other countries and so they do have um they do have kind of reading nights where they will have the author um I, th- I think maybe it's up to the I don't know if it's up to the author or not but they'll either have someone read the English and then they'll have the original on a screen behind the author or they will have the English behind um, and the author will read in the original language. Uh, so they're, they are changing that accessibility as well. And then it's great because you'll have people, you know, people in the audience who are listening to Norwegian author or Lithuanian. Um. Now, oh, tell us about your upcoming project, River. Yeah. So The River is um, the book that I translated for the um, the triptych that I curated. It is a book. It's a book about loss. Um, it's a book about dealing with loss and and also different kinds of losses. So the, the very, very main character, um, she, her sister disappeared 10 years ago. Um, we know from the introductory chapter, um, sort of the prologue that the sister was kidnapped off the street one night. We don't, we don't know what happens to her. Um, there's no real resolution for that. And then it jumps forward 10 years. And, um, this woman, Rute has just been informed of her father's their father's death their estranged father they haven't seen him since they were like four or five um and so she inherits this property um rural property by a river uh and she is still you know 10 years down the line dealing with this loss of her sister um and it's it's changed her fundamentally as a person um and she also is sort of hit a point where she needs to get away from people, the city, and you know she just sort of gets this gets this property dropped in her lap by this person from this person um, who, who she never really knew, um, and so she just packs a bag one day and leaves the city. Um, doesn't leave a note for her husband or anything doesn't leave a note for work and goes to this property and of course is dealing with or not dealing with, but kind of put in this situation where she's, she's confronted by the loss of her 
or her father, I guess, you know, she's confronted by her father's loss of his life. She's not, she doesn't really feel anything about the losing him because she never really knew him. Um, and she uses the opportunity to just sort of, it, her intent is to get away, but then the neighbors are super friendly. This young woman who you know, has one child is expecting a second. Um, and you sort of, she sort of learns about that woman and her brother about their loss. And she also learns more about her father and that he is, as it turns out, nothing like their mother painted him to be, you know, he's not, he's not a a bad person. He's not a, he's not a drunk. He's not a philanderer. He's not an, an idiot. He was this very heartfelt, you know, humanitarian essentially who, you know, helped these two kids next door whose parents essentially abandoned them with their grandmother um, he would help people less fortunate in the in the village, that sort of stuff. Um, so she's kind of dealing, I guess, by the end of the book, sort of dealing with the loss of not having known this person. Um, and it's it's interesting for me because the first time I read the book, I read it as a book about burnout. Um, this this woman. Uh, she's not she's not a mother, but she has a lot of interactions with the um, neighbor's kid by in this rural by in this house by the river, um, and so I thought it was about burnout and kind of identified identified with it that way. Um, and then more just more recently, uh, earlier in November, um, I was at the Ledig House uh, in New York for the translation lab residency that they offer with the author of the river, um, Laura Vinogradova. And we were talking about this book and I was learning more about her and about the book. And the book, the book essentially comes from, from her. That's where I learned that I sort of misread the, misread it. Um, because for her, uh, her younger brother died about 10 years, I guess about 10 years ago or 10 years before that book came out. Um, and so she was saying, no, it's a book about, about loss and all sorts of different losses. And I lost my dad in September. Um, so I, I spent, you know, the first, the first week sort of carefully rereading this book and recognizing different things about it. Like, yeah, these are, this is a language. These, these are words, not of someone who's burnt out, but someone who is, still, you know, this character 10 years down the line is still struggling on a daily basis with the loss of her sister, with the loss of her, clo- you know, the person closest to her. And um, and just rereading it from, you know, unfortunately, the right, <laughs> the right sort of state of mind and point of view really, really changed it. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say I don't need to retranslate the entire book, um, but it is, it is helpful to identify identify those little those little turns in the language or the or the types of words that are used and what i love about the book is that there is there is no set ending um i mean it's a short book so i'm not I'm not going to give it away i suppose everyone buy it and read it um <laughs> but <laughs> i don't, unfortunately we don't have a coupon code to put up but at some point we can oh you know you can pre-order it probably um we could do that um but it's it's a book that doesn't have 
it doesn't have a it doesn't have a cut and dry neat ending um and 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 as someone who is currently actively grieving I, I appreciate that even more so now because, you know, even though it doesn't have a closed ending, it still has a sort of, there's a sense of hope, of, of hopefulness to it or a sense of, you know, ever, you know, ever moving forward where you don't have to, there's not, nothing needs to be final about grief. It doesn't have to be an ending point. You can continue to you can you can you can keep your grief. You can continue to keep it. Keep it. You can continue to grieve, um, and that's totally fine. You don't you don't ever have to let go of it. But um, you know, if you want to you know, go about your life, you do you do need to find a way to exist with it. Um, and that's sort of the the metaphor of the river. I I told the author that I think I found kind of the the epitome, the essential moment of the book. And there's a scene where this woman, Rute, um, goes down to the river and she goes swimming and she's sort of, you know, um, the river's the river's not very wide, so she can swim across in a couple of strokes, but it's pretty deep in the middle, um, which you can all look at as metaphors of grief um, or descriptors of it. But she finds... You know, she sort of starts feeling the current and she can feel the the sort of seaweed in the river. Um, and she's thinking about how, you know, the river, the river is a road to the sea and it's constantly moving. But she finds a spot in the river where she can float and she can feel the current, but she she doesn't get she doesn't get pushed around. I don't remember if it's because she's tangled in seaweed or if she just finds kind of a spot where she's just floating and feeling everything move around her. And I thought this is, this is it. This is the, this is the description, the best description of, of grief in that moment and of loss and of, of existing with it because you can feel it all around you. Everything, you can feel everything moving. However, it's moving in a forward direction out into the greater expanses but and she feels so calm in that moment of floating in the river and in the water, and I just I, I fell in love with that part especially even more than I did the first time because now it, it carries such a different meaning. Um, and this author is so good. I think Latvian authors are also they're they're so good at subtext. So this is a book that is it's fewer than one hundred pages long, but it's. There's so much, there's so much going on in it. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yes. Yes, river is a very strong metaphor for life. Mm-hmm. What happens in river? River goes and it meets the ocean. Then it goes up. Yes. Again, yes. it comes back in the form of river. Yes. Probably the concept mm-hmm. of rebirth in the practical yeah. terms whether it is real or not real, that's a different debate altogether, philosophical debate or whatever, a theological yeah. debate. But it's one way to handle grief, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we've we've done it in our house with our pets um, where, you know, a very, very beloved cat passed away and, um, you know, my stepdaughter got a, a, got a kitten this summer and she'll identify little things where she's, oh, you know, I think this is, this is something that, 
you know, the, the cat that died, that's something that he would have done and the kitten never met him. And, um, we have a puppy also now, and there are times where, you know, sort of look at the puppy and go, that's something that, <laughs> that's something you're not, you know, that's not, that's not a, not a, not a one for one ratio of rebirth, but there's something it's like, like something like that, that cat's spirit or energy is around and he's kind of sprinkling it into the other pets. He's like, I'm, you know, this thing that they used to love or that used to annoy them, but was really funny when it annoyed them. Like this pet, this new pet gets a little bit of it. The puppy gets a little bit of it. Um, but it's nice because it, you know, it makes you, it, it reminds you of those things. And that's also actually something like the the spirituality and, and rebirth of things is another thing that the author and I talked about. And, um, and it's, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that as well with uh, with the river and with the book. Yeah. Now, before we end, can you please read a couple of paragraphs from High Tide in Latvian and English? All right. There's an um, excerpt from the beginning of the book that I found. Dinai patīk pierotis. Tāds siltums viņas mājā. Tāds, kuram nav ne jausmas par vēju ārā. Iejot māsas dzīvoklī, dina uzreiz novilk zābakus, zeķis un basām kājām ilgi stāv un sildās. Rotei ir siltas grīdas. Rotei ir vis. Ko tu dari, rotes smējas? Ārā esi bijusi? Nē, strādāju. Kas tur ir? Vējš, mazo māsiņi, vējš. Te arī. Rute atkal smējas un pūš dinai virsū elpu. Pēc tam viņas dzer kafiju. Rute pasūta pīcu. Dina skatiens klīst pa virtuvi. Tas badīgi ķer visu skaisto, jo pie rutes ir skaisti. Silti un skaisti. Dažreiz dinai gribas to rutei pārmest. Pārmest, ka viņi ir izrāvusies. Pārmest, ka Stefans viņu ir izrāvis, jo dina netiek prom. Netiek prom no augstuma, no vientulības. Un dažreiz dinai liekas, ka viņa nemaz nedrīkst tikt prom. Nedrīkst izrauties. Nepienākās izrauties. Un tad viņa dusmojas uz ruti. Jo arī ruti nedrīkstēja dzīvot šeit. Nedrīkstēja iepazīt siltas grīdas un mīļumu. Nedrīkstēja apkarināt visus plauktus ar gaismas virtiņu bumbām. Dina likes Rutte's place. There's a warmth to it, the kind oblivious to the weather outside. As soon as she steps into her sister's apartment, Dina takes off her boots and socks and stands for some time barefoot, soaking up the warmth. Rutte has heated floors. Rutte has everything. What are you doing? Rutte laughs. Have you been outside? No, I've been working. What is it? The wind, little sister, the wind. There's a wind in here too. Rutte laughs again and blows air into Dina's face. Then they drink coffee. Rutte orders a pizza. Dina's eyes wander around the kitchen. They hungrily take in every beautiful detail because Rutte's space is beautiful, warm and beautiful. Sometimes Dina wants to call her out on it, tell her she's spoiled, tell her Stefan spoils her. Because Dina can't escape, not the cold, not her loneliness. And sometimes she feels like she can't even try. Can't be free of it, doesn't deserve to be. And then she gets angry at Rutte. 
angry because Rota shouldn't be living in an apartment like this, shouldn't have heated floors or love, shouldn't be stringing fairy lights from all the shelves. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and uh, for such a great conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>